0: To the Guiding Compass podcast. My name is Sandra Kushner, and I am a licensed marriage and family therapist. I started this podcast to help bring more awareness and education around topics related to mental health and wellness. And today we have Abby Crum on the podcast. She is a licensed marriage and family therapist who I've known for a few years, and she has a private practice in West Los Angeles. And I'm so excited to have her because we're talking about a topic that is really really important especially to people who are struggling with body image issues which I feel like so many of us are these days with social media and unrealistic expectations of what we should look like but specifically we're going to be talking about intuitive eating what that means and how she works with her clients to help them break free of unhealthy patterns related to that so thanks for being on the show today Abby yeah thanks for having me I'm excited to be here I know. It's awesome. I've known you for so long and you do such awesome work. So thank you for reaching out and, you know, volunteering to be a guest on the show.
1: Yes. Thank you so much. Yeah. It's great to connect in this way.
0: Totally. So tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got into this work and what you specialize in and why intuitive eating is the topic that you really want to focus on today.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I think like so many therapists, there were definitely events in my own life that led me to where I am today. And I think, you know, as far as, you know, with body image and relationship to food, that is something, it's like one of the longest struggles I've had in my own personal life. And like, if you grew up, if you're around my age, you know, and you grew up in the 90s, then it was all diet culture, Weight Watchers. I was on Weight Watchers really young with my mom. And that was something we actually did as like a bonding exercise, you know, like because it was seen as like good and it was encouraged, you know, that wasn't seen as anything weird to do, you know, Um, to be on like a diet at 12 years old. And so um, I was always, it gave me this idea that like, uh, I should always be trying to lose weight. I should always be trying to change my body. And um, even through grad school, Um, in psychology, which I don't think touches on these issues a lot. Um, I was eating in a disordered way. But like, I thought I was being really like, healthy. And you know, like, I was being really like, you know, knowledgeable about nutrition, you know. And so um, I, I think it took me actually working more specifically with eating disorders to realize that even the way I was eating was disordered, you know, and that to let go of, this constant
0: obsession with food and body, you know? Totally. And I completely relate to you on that. I actually had my own therapy this morning and I was talking to my therapist about how as a teenager, I used to be a little bit chubbier and, you know, you didn't really struggle with any unhealthy behaviors in relationship to food. I think I just kind of, that was my body. I was in the pre-puberty growth period and, then when i went through puberty and suddenly like got taller and lost a lot of weight how that like directly started impacting like how popular i was and how many friends that i had and you know how much attention i got from boys and so at such a young age especially girls start to associate that what we look like or what our body looks like specifically is related to a sense of like belonging or being good enough or love And we were talking about how that really is a hard thing to rewire and change and have a different relationship to not only food, but like your own body as well and feeling comfortable in it. Exactly. And like, my guess is like part of what, You know,
1: led to all those changes is when you feel like comfortable, and you know, like you start to act in a different way. And like there was that movie that came out uh, with Amy Schumer, I I feel pretty. And you know, the whole concept was like, right, like it's like when you get a haircut or something, you know. And you, we do feel differently, and when we feel differently, we pick different actions and we engage with the world in a different way. And when you know, so it's not inherently that people in larger bodies are less attractive. It's that we built a world in which, you know, that is, you're going to not feel comfortable unless you're in this one particular type of body. And so, um, and again, it wasn't always that way. That's why we always look back and see advertisements where it used to be, if you were in a smaller body, you know, um, then it was like, hey, mean you know, they, it was just like, it's always changing, you know, what the standard is and based on what the standard is and how much you fully you measure up to it, that's going to be the way you engage with the world, you know?
0: Totally. My fiance and I yesterday were driving up to Oregon and we actually had this conversation about how capitalism is at play with this kind of stuff where when the, when the marketing executives, right, make a standard of beauty so unattainable and unreachable for the average person, Right. Even the models that they're showing on advertisements and like putting front and center as like, this is the norm of beauty. Right. They're edited. They're starved. They're unhealthy in many ways. Like they're also not at their like natural healthiest weight. And what happens to the average, you know, child or woman or even man comparing themselves to that is that they're always reaching this goal trying to reach this goal that's just not ever going to be attainable and the reason that that exists is if it was attainable then there wouldn't be a market for like diet pills and programs like Weight Watchers and stuff like that and so he was talking about how it's important to be mindful and aware of that and be you know intentional about how much you absorb this information knowing that there's probably some Dude behind the scenes that's really rich and powerful that's setting these unrealistic expectations yeah. for us and controlling our behavior in a lot of ways. Exactly. You know, like
1: the and that's the first principle of intuitive eating is um reject diet mentality or like and challenge diet culture. Mm-hmm. And so um, you know, because you have to ask like who is benefiting, like who is getting the most benefit out of uh, you know, me following this plan or this program. And like, if you think about it, like on every level, it's somebody else, you know, like if you've ever like followed a diet or just like gotten yourself there, you know, it when you get to that point where it's supposed to be like, oh, here's where your life just like turns around and, you know, everything's all better. You know, it doesn't really transform your life in the way that you thought it would, you know, it doesn't feel as great as you thought it would, because also you're tied to this Program apparently for the rest of your life. You know what I mean? You either need to obsess for the rest of your life or um, you have this fear of going backwards. And that's the way it's framed is like going backwards, failing, you know. So that's why most people feel stuck. I have no direction to go, but commit to this even if I'm not happy or feel like a failure. Mm-hmm.
0: Definitely. And also with diet culture in relation to food, I'm so curious about. You know what people that you work with like come in with presenting as like their issue. Does yeah. it, is it, are they aware that they have an issue with their relationship either to their body or to their food, or is it something that c- kind of gets uncovered through the work that you do when they're coming in for a different type of issue?
1: Yeah, I would say probably all of the above. Like, I think you know sometimes it's it someone doesn't even realize this is playing into their life at all, you know? And I might mention something when I hear them make a comment and then it's like, oh, right. We haven't even gone into this whole area of food and body, right? That's been something that's been with me for a long time. Um, And some people come specifically um, saying, you know, like, and this is what's been hard. I think even a few years ago, you know, if you didn't, fit the criteria for an eating disorder. It didn't feel like there was really much space for treatment. You know what I mean? And so a lot of people feel like I'm in this gray area. I don't fit the criteria for an eating disorder. Um, but I do think about food all the time. I think about my body all the time. I'm unhappy, you know, a lot of the time. And so, yes, many people will say that or they feel they're out of control with eating. You know, what we typically call binge eating. But that's really a spectrum. You know what I mean? Like um, there's binge eating that, you know, can feel like 24 hours a day out of control, um, you know, intaking you know, to the point of uncomfortable fullness a lot. Um, and sometimes it can just feel like when I have this particular food, I go to the end of the bag and I don't know what that's about, you know, which is going to be different. Those are two different life experiences, but that's, we only have this one word, which is binging for it. Right. And so I think that's, what's also hard is people are like, I don't know if this is really a problem, you know, and it seems pretty normal, but I also don't like it when it happens. And so people will kind of talk about that and it's like, well, let's see what's going on here.
0: Mm -hmm. Definitely. And something that you mentioned when we were kind of chatting before we started recording was the amount of perfectionism that you see in clients that are often struggling with this. Can you speak a little bit to that? Is it perfectionism in general, like in all aspects of their life, or is it perfectionism about their diet or what their body looks like? And I'm assuming, at least in my experience, so often people who have and struggle with anxiety or OCD types of behaviors, oftentimes exhibit perfectionistic tendencies. And so that's where I see it come up a lot. And definitely in my experience as a clinician has either led to eating disorders or use of like stimulants, addictions of some sort, work addiction. So yeah, can you speak a little bit about how perfectionism is at play with what you're just talking about?
1: yes and and first i want to talk about perfectionism because you know because the word perfect is in there and we probably should come up with a different word for it because every time i introduce where i hear the tenants of perfectionism in what somebody's saying the first thing they'll do is go no wait i'm not a perfectionist let me tell you about someone i know who you know because they're doing everything and actually what they're describing is probably someone with more um OCD traits or OCPD, you know, um, someone who has a personality around needing things to be neat and organized, which is not exactly what perfectionism is. Perfectionism is unrelenting high standards. Mm-hmm. And when you are not meeting those standards, you experience suffering. So when I start to explain to clients, okay, this is what I mean by perfectionism. It doesn't mean you do everything perfectly. Um, you know, it means that you feel you need to meet this standard or you're in pain. And so when we, we can see that in so many different areas. So it's probably showing up in multiple areas like work, like, um, relationship and then with food and body. Right. So it could be all those things. Like I need my body to look a certain way, or I need to be working out this many days a week. So whatever the standard is. Um, and then we get this kind of what I like to call the rebel and the role follower. So, you know, lots of people, especially with perfectionist tendencies tend to fall in this, like there is this wanting to follow rules and have structure and do it right. Like there's something that, and I think that's about anxiety, right? Like if I can like tick all the boxes then I know I've done everything I can do. Right. But then this rebel is the part that's operating more on the subconscious level which is, I don't want to do this. I don't want to follow the rules all the time. I don't, you know, and so the rebel starts to play out like, "Mm, that's what people call this cheat days or, you know, so this rebel ends up getting labeled as the self-sabotager or the like anti-willpower, which is not what it is. It's a part that's ignored that is actually like in any kind of people-pleasing behavior, like people-pleasers, are the nicest on the outside and the angriest on the inside. And I know personally, because I'm, if I have a tendency, it's towards people pleasing. And so I think it's the same with, um, you know, perfectionism is that rule follower is the one that's like, I'm doing it. Like I want credit for this. And on the inside, you are pissed. You don't want to do any of this, but you feel like you have no choice. And so that part is coming out and getting ignored and coming out and kind of leaking out in ways instead of you consciously
0: choosing well to me when you say that what comes up is like that's the human part of us right like we're imperfect we make mistakes we all have our own little flaws and quirks but that's what makes us like vulnerable and amazing and able to relate to others and connect at a deeper level but with this unrealistic standard i think that all of us especially with the introduction of social media and seeing people that look perfect and have perfect bodies and lives and you know are edited in many ways and filtered to project that image we feel like we don't belong unless we're like that but then the natural human self that isn't perfect and wants to belong like there's almost like the word that comes up for me like pent-up rage Mm -hmm. I think that comes up around that of like I don't I'm not accepted for me like why am I not accepted for me like I'm just human and then that's the part that we hide and it kind of becomes like this thing that overtakes us that leads to secret behaviors to sabotage ourselves and allow, and then keeps us from ever getting to that place of perfect. And sometimes I work from a psychodynamic lens. So for me, I'm like, maybe we don't want to get to perfect unconsciously. And so that part exists because we know it's stupid and we know that it's, you know, not what matters in life, but Yet we are told the ego self, right, believes that. So interesting because I feel like sometimes that rebellious behavior is actually coming from a place of knowing that this is not attainable and also probably not what's important in life to most of us, right? Yes.
1: Yeah. It's almost like that part can be like that sarcastic friend you have that you sit at the back of meetings with and like, kind of like make fun of everything. And that's really fun and it feels good. And it's like venting. Right. But like when we don't bring that, so when we keep it kind of like secret and hidden, we get that itch scratched by kind of having a part of ourselves that we can kind of commiserate with. But, um, we, we also write, it's not out in front where we can say like, right, like actually own that, that like, I don't believe in this, you know? And I think that's what like intuitive eating and just this first principle of challenging diet mentality, it's like a place to actually bring that part out front front, that rebel and use it constructively, not destructively. Um, you know, and so we, we really get to use that part in a way that's, you know, again, it's
0: about stepping into your power, you know, in a way. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about what intuitive eating actually is and how at least how you define it? Cause I think there's so much information out there right now, especially with social media, there's a lot of life coaches, nutritionists, dietitians, therapists, and everyone kind of has their own way of doing things and diet plans that they recommend and intuitive eating i would say is kind of a buzzword out there right now yes. that people who are not formally trained in working with eating disorders are oftentimes using to promote themselves and you know get followers get people to buy their programs. so yeah can you define it a little bit or how you define it for sure. the work that you do
1: sure so yeah i mean i really like evelyn Tribble, who's one of the authors of intuitive eating Um, I really like her definition, which is it's an evidence-based self-care framework for eating. Mm -hmm. And this is, you know, you mentioned so many important things, uh, which is that this word gets co-opted and like, just, you know, one of Paltrow just released intuitive fasting, which you could not put two words (laughs) together that were more like not the intention of what intuitive eating is. So it's so easy to get confused on social media and and I love social media for the fact that it democratizes ideas that we may not have had access to. And I do think access to this information is important for everybody, but right. It's kind of, you have to sort it and take things with a grain of salt. And so, um, I think it's really about this return to the body. So if people are really focusing on the food with intuitive eating, which there are aspects of kind of like, um, trying different foods and, you know, noticing how you feel with different foods, but I would say that much more of the work is a return to the body and the body's natural intelligence. And what we knew as babies and as children, you know, we have it built into our body, you know, when we're hungry, when we're full. Um, And we outsource that because we think, oh, but I look wrong or I am wrong or I don't know. So I need to go to this expert or this book And so once we've done that for so long, we lose touch with our body's like natural intelligence. And so that to me is like what sets that apart from being like, eat this, not that, you know, like that's what most diets end up being. And that's not what intuitive eating is intended to be. um, Even though like when you're working with a practitioner and that's what I think that I would say that don't go online to see what you should be eating because the whole thing is about finding what's right for you but yes when you're working with an intuitive eating dietitian or therapist they can talk to you about how a particular food might feel in your body
0: totally oh when you just said that like the thing that came up for me was not only do we have to kind of relearn you know what our bodies need and connect to them but I'm wondering if people even know that ever especially because yes. we live in such an indulgent culture and you know, I'm, I'm a millennial. So I grew up in the nineties. Right. And that was such a pleasure filled, like, you know, eat the Cheerios, eat the Twix, eat the Gatorade. Like all this stuff was just like given to us. And like, there was so much sugar. And like, I think now kids are eating a little bit healthier because there's more research around like the impact of like having sugar introduced early into your diet. But I feel like the nineties and even like the eighties and 70s were a very like indulgent time in history and in our culture, especially in America. And so at least for me, like, I don't think I ever learned to notice what my body is actually needing or craving or understanding my hunger cues because food to me was always just something that was like so readily available. And um, culturally too, I come from a Russian Jewish family. So that's how mm-hmm. you can show love. And yes. our family It's just like, even if you're not hungry, you eat. So, yeah, I'm, I'm curious, do you feel like most people even ever had that attunement to their body and they have to relearn it or did they ever like not have, did they always not have it, I guess, is the question. Well, and
1: that, yeah, I mean, especially just again, and for this like kind of eighties, nineties generation, like this is not how we're thinking. Everything was about, you know, like low fat and even, but so even this thing about sugar, sugar is like the latest villain but it's not even sugar. That's the problem. I know there's, you know, but see then we go, Oh, but there's research and I've heard it. And it's not good for you. And it's addictive, but that's, it was like fat before. And then we were like, Oh wait, no, we need fat for our brains to operate and for our body, you know, like, so we will notice that in our place and time, we'll be like, okay, well, but what's the latest thing that really I shouldn't be eating, but even sugar, it's not really the problem. Again, sugar has been a part of many people's diets. Um, for a long time. It's what I think is that it's the underlying stress. So when you say, yeah, like, did we know, does anyone basically learn to eat intuitively? Like, I don't know many people who were brought up to eat intuitively. And actually, this, the part, so there's two parts to what you said, even about your own um, experience as a child, you know? So there's this part, yes, there's this part about um, when you were you know, as a child, there was food available. That's actually part of intuitive eating. So that part actually would be good to actually have food available. The part where it's like, but you always have to be eating beyond fullness, out of respect. This is something that a lot of people struggle with, especially culturally. And so, Um, and the thing with, so I want to talk a little bit about sugar and sweets and, you know, um, Evelyn will call this play food instead of junk food, because anytime we get into black and white thinking, which we know just from being therapists, um, so if foods become good or bad, you know, healthy or unhealthy, we're going to get back into the same cycle. But so, but people also get confused that because intuitive eating says, yes, we're not cutting out any food groups that you're supposed to just get every, you know, <laughs> food you've denied yourself over the last, you know, 20, 30, 40 years and eat it all at once. Well, no, that's not really paying attention to your body either. Mm-hmm. So it's really about what what is my relationship with this particular food? You know, um, am I using it, you know, am I attuned to my feelings that I might be using this food um to block a certain feeling or to numb out a certain feeling? And if I enjoy it, can I enjoy it mindfully? You know what I mean? The reason we sometimes feel like it's addictive is we're actually being pretty mindless. You know what I mean? We're just kind of taking it in as a way to soothe something. And so um, that's part of it is how do I have this relationship with play foods, foods that don't necessarily are not for my nutrition, but are for to enjoy the love of food, to enjoy life.
0: How do I have a relationship with that that works for me, you know? totally okay. and I, um i read a very interesting book it was called when food is comfort and it talks a lot about how certain types of cravings and certain types of foods really are emotional needs that aren't being met yeah. and that we, we start to associate you know this type of food with this emotional need and yeah. one of the things i found so interesting the fact that you're talking about sugar cuz sugar, I think is really important, right? Like, I love the fact that you just said it's indulgent. It's something that allows you to enjoy life, right? Like having a chocolate or a piece of cake, like, you know, I I always look to like the French and Italian cultures, the way that they like savor foods and like sit down and like enjoy those things. But they seem to have a little bit healthier of a relationship to eating those foods, like they'll do it in a way that is very intentional and like they have time to kind of enjoy it they're not overeating they're really like mindful and present with that experience yeah it's interesting because i feel like in the book i remember it talking about um especially like with sweet foods that oftentimes it's a need for internal self-compassion that. Is lacking, and yeah. that the food is kind of meeting that need. Like you're needing sweetness in your life, and instead of being able to offer it to yourself internally, you're seeking that external thing to meet the need. Yeah, um, which I found so interesting, and it, it makes sense to me, especially as like the generation of people right now coming to therapy they mostly grew up at a time when both parents started working, right? Like the yes. nuclear family started changing. And so there wasn't like necessarily that like one present attentive caregiver yes. giving you nurturance like in the past. And you kind of see a direct correlation with like obesity and like unhealthy habits in Americans going sim- up simultaneously too the nuclear family, and changing. And then you see a lot of issues around body image and eating disorders and all that kind of stuff happening with the rise of social media. Yeah. So it's interesting how these, like, two kind of cold... It's, like, almost, like, swinging. Yeah. And,
1: yes, and, you know, and even the word obesity now with, like, haze, which is health at every size, mm-hmm. you know, we're moving away from using that word only because... And this is, like, see, it's... This is all learning for me, too, you know, um, because, again, there's this like implication um, health at every size is really that uh, a lot of the things that have been attributed as like medical problems to people in larger bodies. Actually, there's no research. to. It was just like a convenient catch all for so many, you know, like problems. And the truth is it diverts us away from something really important that I feel like there's many people that benefit us from not knowing, which is stress. Stress Mm -hmm. is one of those, when you look again, and you mentioned it, you know, there's a lot of studies of other cultures, like what would you hear typically from like someone who is promoting clean eating is like no white rice, right? But in Japan where they have high food satisfaction, high life expectancy, they, that's their whole, you know, diet, you know? So when we talk about what other factors, is it really this food, this fact that white rice is, you know, really the problem or you know, the stress, you know, and that's the thing we have really like you know, in our culture is so high. you know, our other cultures have programs to help support people. So they're not under constant stress. The U S we don't have a lot of those programs, you know? And so that I think is the factor that really gets a lot gets put on food. But like you said, that two parents need to work. That's also related, right? That, what you people used to be able to do on one income now most people need to do on two or maybe more because maybe the parents are working multiple jobs yeah Yeah. that's stress and then you think about um going down you know um of like privilege of like people um of color you know and like that that work gets end up put on certain people in society and then those bodies are the ones most demonized you know because there is actually some research on a great book um, Fearing the Black Body by Sabrina Strings, and just this way in which um actually she did research to show that where this originated, this like deprivation type eating, was actually this puritanical culture that was like, How are we gonna separate ourselves as the superior race? I mean, it's really racist, it's just saying, like, well, we can deprive ourselves, we can like we have this like de- deprive our like sexual appetites, our food appetites, and that's how we're gonna show. So that got very like ingrained that that's how you show how superior you are. And you can see that even today, like how people show their superiority through their weight, through their body, through their ability to pride themselves, you
0: know? And so, um, yeah. Yeah, that makes so much sense to me. And like the stress is enormous, right? Like what you just mentioned, like the cost of living has gone up the nuclear family has changed, dating has changed, Um, student loans have gone up, right? And it feels like people are constantly in chronic fight or flight, just living their everyday lives. And we forget that because we have so many privileges being Americans and living in a high standard of life. But that high standard of life like simultaneously comes with like of working ourselves to death in a lot of ways and like not taking time to relax and be mindful and take vacations and breaks because you know also cost of living's gone up with that. Yeah, like it, it all makes so much sense. And food is something that is pleasurable. Like it is one of the more like, I don't know nurturing mm-hmm. enjoyable exciting things that we do as humans right like having a meal and it feels like maybe that's become almost like an outlet for a lot of people yeah and, right if if it starts becoming the only place where you allow yeah. yourself time for yourself or time off or the only thing that feels enjoyable in your life it can kind of become something that starts to control you instead of being in control of it. That's
1: it. It's like there, we want to just like find a balanced relationship in the same way when we talk to clients about dating, you know, like there are a lot of pitfalls to date. Like you mentioned online dating, you know, like just, but you know, so the tendency is to want to just like restrict, right. I have clients all the time who swear off dating or just refuse to just, you know, and it's fine to take a break, but at some point, We have to go pitfalls and all and like find our relationship with any area of life um, that we want, you know, to grow in and have a relationship with, you know. And so part of having a relationship is kind of working with those sticky parts. So I think it's the same thing with eating, you know, um, people found only this one extreme way, which is deprivation, which again will not work over time. Like our bodies are too intelligent for that. That's why there is this rebound effect. If you deprive yourself, you're going to feel out of control at some point. Mm -hmm. Um, But because we think the only way uh, to resolve it is to deprive ourselves, um, we, we find this really extreme solution instead of engaging with it. And that's what I think is really good about this is it's like, so how do I find my particular relationship? Like it can be all the things it has been, it can be a support, it can be enjoyable, um, it can be a pain, but how do I find a way in which it doesn't take over my life? And it feels like just one area of my life that's like um, yeah, just it's just part of it, not all of it,
0: yeah, and um, integration of like mindfulness and being aware of what's going on internally to you as an yeah. individual, right? What your own triggers are, what your own body's needs are and cravings are. yeah, so do, can you talk a little bit about? what you in particular do in order to teach intuitive eating to your clients and what the work looks like. So people can get an idea of either how they can start kind of dipping their toe in the water to learn these skills themselves, or maybe if they're interested in potentially working with you or somebody who specializes in this, you know, what are some of the things that you do?
1: Yeah. So the what's really nice about, so there's 10 principles in this book and you don't have to do them in a particular order. So I really start where the client is at. So, um, you know, typically for instance, if somebody was struggling mainly with body image, you know, I would start with this body respect and movement, like how to get, and, and again, I think intuitive eating is seen as this like just free for all thing, which is so far from what it is. But you know, it's really about what movement is going to work for you. Um, Because it is important. There's a lot of research that shows so it's not just throwing out that these things are helpful. Um, But it's like how to not get into over exercise and how to find that body respect and relationship with your body and find your body's natural um, genetic blueprint. And so there's so many different exercises in it. And that's I really respond to exercises personally because it's like something tangible. And so, um, that like, so it might be building up that body respect or like that relationship to movement. Um, it could also be another area where it's common to start is hunger and fullness cues. Mm -hmm. It is really normal to come in and not have any sense of that. And so it does take time to build that. And so there are lots of ways to start to build that awareness. What, is called interoceptive awareness. So, interceptive awareness is our awareness of our inner experience. It's how we know, how you know you need to run and pee. You know, it's how you, how you know you need like your feelings. How it's how you know you're sad. You know what I mean? Um, that has a sensation to it. So, uh, we don't get taught a lot about this. And so, part of it is reconnecting to this part of ourselves that like. So, it's so natural to know when you need to go to the restroom. Mm -hmm. And so we moved away from that being natural around hunger and fullness, but we can get back to that point where it's just so clear. Mm -hmm. Um, But again, I think it takes practice. And so, yes, I'm running groups for that specific reason. So, I mean, I work with people one-on-one, but I'm, me personally, I'm at capacity with one-to-one people. So there's tons of, but you can go to the uh, intuitive eating directory if you want to find a practitioner that works that way. Mm-hmm. And if you really want to work specifically with food, um, I would recommend like a dietitian. Um, So that's a really good place to start too. Um, but the reason I started doing groups is because I, again, it's something I would need for myself as well because it's so easy to read and like see the exercise and be like, okay, that's a good exercise. So <laughs> like, you know, we get the insight, but then the practice is something else. But if I have a frame around it, if I know, okay, on Mondays, I'm going to this group or, you know, like I'm talking to people about it, I'll, I'll do it. I'll participate. But it's like one of those things that's kind of hard to do on your own. So I really wanted there to be um, a framework. So people have a place where they know every week they can come back to and in busy lives and just get through all the 10 principles at least you have an understanding and have done some of the exercises you have a framework of where to start um but yes each principle has practices with it that help you strengthen that but yes i you know some people are like oh yeah i already reject the diet mentality that's not where my issue is but then when i get around this certain food i feel out of control so then i would start with like hunger and fullness and also like maybe check in with like emotions like How is this person, like you said, if this is your only coping skill, of course, it's what you're going to go to in stress. But What other coping skills might you be able to develop? What attitude toward yourself might you be able to develop that might help in that way? Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And the body movement and understanding you really do need to kind of carve out intentional time to Mm -hmm. those skills, right? Like they seem so easy when you say it, right? Like you learn about it and you're like, well, yeah, of course. Like, of course our body is this well-oiled machine that like really communicates to us when it needs something, right? Like we know when we're tired, we know when something doesn't feel right. But because these things are so, these needs are so kind of like suppressed Mm -hmm. due to the immense amount of stress that we're under and like other things that we're prioritizing. Yes. We don't, have that connection so that intentional time is important i think having the accountability that you're talking about too to make sure that you are making that intentional time and that you are prioritizing this is easier to do if you have other people doing it with you instead of like trying to hold yourself accountable to make these big changes yes
1: and that's it we we do so much on our own and i mean this is just again across the board not just around food and body image but you know, we just really feel, I'm always encouraging, you know, I've really started to reframe therapy as expertise, Um, you know, because, and, you know, only because I've had more time and space to get into these things. It's not because I'm a rocket scientist, you know, these are things that anybody can get, but I need a dedicated time. And like, that's why, you know, what a graduate program and a career will allow you to like really deep dive into these concepts, but in the average life, like we don't really have that. And so, um, it is hard. We, we feel like I should be able to get this right. I, that concept isn't difficult. So why can't I just do it myself? And so it really is like not shaming ourselves for that, but saying like we are built to learn things in groups. Everybody's learned things in groups from the beginning of time. You know, that is how people have navigated the world. It's only, more recently in time that we've gotten this more individualistic attitude and probably mm-hmm. to our detriment. You know what I mean? Like we're meant to learn in community.
0: Totally. So, totally. And I can imagine, especially with everything that's happened in 2020, the pandemic, people being isolated and alone, maybe not yes. having space to move their bodies or structure uh, to their day in the same way that they did before, that it's probably been even harder to yeah attuned to these things. And so having this space, I think is so, so important to just kind of not only take care of yourself, but to start creating healthier habits, especially because we don't know how this will long-term impact the world if if work will continue to be at home. And, you know, people need to learn these tools. I, I always say, I wish these things were taught or an early elementary school through middle school, yes. and high school in like a mental health class that is integrated from a young age. So children can grow up with these skills. Yes. But hopefully we'll get there one when- day. <laughs> yes. I totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about how people can get in contact with you if they want to work with you or want to be a part of your group or have yeah. any questions. So yeah, so all my intuitive
1: eating um groups and everything are on my website, truefoodfreedom.com. And uh, you can also uh, Instagram at truefoodfreedom. My website is abbycrom.com. I've done them separately. So if you're interested in doing intuitive eating, um, I made it separate as an educational group so I could offer it anywhere where if you know with therapy, we need to offer it in the state we're located. And so thankfully, intuitive eating is more of a framework. It's not a you know, this exact same as therapy. Mm So, um, I just integrate it with my therapy practice. So this really, um, if you're interested in learning to become a more intuitive eater, um, and you want to work with me on intuitive eating, I can really do that with anybody, regardless of location. And if you are in California and want to look at my therapy practice, um, yes, abbycrom.com and my, uh, Instagram
0: is abbycrom LMFT. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate this conversation and obviously glad to see you because it's been a while. I felt the networking train a little bit with COVID. So yeah, you again for joining us. Yeah. Nice to see you too. Awesome. All right, you guys, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the guiding compass. As I always say, remember to follow your own compass out there. Take care and stay safe.